I'm Agnes Frimston. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. Agnes, you're here in the media studio with me. How's your week been? Uh, busy, yes. We're finalising the next edition. Next edition of the World, of the World Today. Today. Lovely. What's yeah. in it this time? Lots of great stuff. We've got a cover story by James Ball on deep fakes. Ooh, what are deep fakes? Um, you know when this new technology where you you film somebody from lots of different angles and you record them and then you can use that to make them say whatever you want. Ooh. Yeah, or speak in different languages or... Um, so, a bit sinister, but he's writing about whether or not we really need to be worried about them and how worried we need to be. Got an interview with Caroline Criado Perez, who is the writer and activist who got Jane Austen on a banknote and a statue of Millicent Fawcett up in Parliament Square. And she's just written a new book called Invisible Women, which is all about the data gap when it comes to women and men. Mm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What are your top examples of the data gap um, oh gosh there are so many really interesting ones the car one's really interesting so um, there's only one female dummy test dummy uh, it, for car manufacturers and it's only ever used in the passenger seat and women are far less likely to get into car accidents but if they are in an accident they're far more likely than men to be injured wow. because they sit further forward um, their legs and pelvis are in a different position and the models are treated like smaller down, shrunk down men rather than women. What else? You know, the fact that stab vests for police officers are still designed around men, so don't fit women properly, which makes them more likely to get stabbed. Wow. <laughs> or if they are stabbed, to be, you know, hit. So it's that sort of for stuff. It to be more effective. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of medical things too. Um, like uh, Viagra, when it was originally tested was proven to cut period pain for four hours mm. in women. But they decided that wasn't really worth investigating. What? And women, heart attacks in women, like it's one of the biggest killers of women, heart attacks, and they symptoms prevent, present very differently to the way they do in men. So they're underdiagnosed because we're taught that a heart attack is, this is what a heart attack looks like, and actually that's just in men. You're telling me all this with such a zen-like calm. I'm not, <laughs> I'm very I'm not sure now. if I was in your position <laughs> and someone zen. had written a book about men being systematically misdiagnosed from a data point of view, I would be so zen. But it's not malice, you know, it's, oh, yeah, just, it's just thoughtlessness. thoughtless, right? It's, and her argument basically is this is what happens when you treat men as the norm, you know, rather than sort of acknowledging that 50-50 a really interesting thing yeah. is like women are far more likely to get car sick and boat sick yeah. because of the way their their back and um, pelvis are positioned Yeah. so they move in a different way like that's mm. madness that is madness um, anyway it's very interesting and what nice about one. you Ben? nice one yeah it's been a really really good week on Tuesday we were both at a conference in Westminster run by the International Security Department at Chatham House alongside Save the Children. And it was the centenary of Save the Children this year. So um, they brought together uh, leading experts from all over the world on how to protect children in conflict zones. 
and we've got some really really awesome interviews from there right i'm really excited we will share these interviews with you listeners in in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. um there'll be a special episode just that we recorded from that conference mm-hmm. absolutely speaking to really interesting people with some of the big speakers and i mean it was just so it was an issue that i regrettably know very little about but now now I do and it's yeah. it's so interesting but we should probably get on to the content of this week's episode rather than looking ahead. So, Agnes, who are we speaking to? Well, I spoke to Carolyn Khan, who is the author of a book which has just come out called, just about to come out, sorry, called Under Red Skies. It's about basically being a Chinese millennial. Mm. It's written in English. Um, uh, she's speaking to me from a cafe in Beijing over Skype, so I apologise if there's a little bit of background noise. <clears throat> um, but sets the scene must be cool to have mates in beijing that you can just call up (laughs) Um, but she's she's a second child born under the one child policy so that's really interesting talked about that um i asked her whether whether she was it felt exciting to be young in china at the moment because in the west we're often talking about the rise of china and all this like does it feel like that if you're in china too Mm. um and of course i asked her about brexit obviously what about you ben well We've actually got an interview, which is the second interview that I recorded from that conference in Toronto that I went to in March, the International Studies Association. And it was recorded at the end of the conference. So I think you can hear that myself and my interviewee were both somewhat knackered. Um, it was a bit of a long, it was it was a long week, but it was a really interesting interview with a recent author from International Affairs called Erica Weintal, who is a professor at Duke University Mm -hmm. in the US and she is co-leading a new research project which is looking at how infrastructure is targeted in conflict and particularly how that affects the lives of the civilians who are kind of caught up in the conflict. Mm -hmm. So um, a recent IA article from our March issue looked at how that played out in Gaza and the West Bank and how Israeli defence forces target things like energy plants and water purification plants and units like that that basically allow you to live, you know, they're sort of vital for sort of human survival in some ways mm-hmm. and what effect that has had on Palestinians in those places. So it's, um, yeah, it's quite a it's quite a troubling interview, but it's really, really interesting work that they're doing, and it's working with data that they are collecting yeah. from now. So it's, How are it's they very new. It? They're collecting it from a range of sort of observer sources from within the region, NGOs. Mm-hmm. The United Nations also does keep some records of this, and they're building a database which reports incidents of infrastructure being targeted, and then they're hoping to expand that out from looking just at Palestine to looking more broadly at other conflicts in the region, Syrian civil war, Yemen Mm -hmm. and elsewhere. So yeah, it's interesting. Let's have a listen. So over the phone from China, we have Caroline Khan who is the author of Under Red Skies, The Life and Times of a Chinese Millennial, um, which will be out in May? Yes. Yes. Am I correct? Yes, brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. (laughs) Thank you. Can I ask you for our listeners and readers who 
aren't lucky enough to have seen an early copy of the book like me. If you could sort of explain what your book's about. Uh, okay, so the book is a memoir. Uh, it's basically about uh, my own experience growing up in China as a millennial. Mm-hmm. I was born in the spring of 1980, 1989. Uh, and the book is not, not only about my generation. At the same time, I try to... Uh, also wave together the stories of the older generations of my family and to tell how their stories impact my own life choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my writing, I try to present a real life of common Chinese families to the Western audience and from the perspective of a young Chinese woman. And, uh, you know, in the past 30 years, as my generation grew up, uh, work, establish a families, China changes so quickly and so many things happen. Uh, so I try to uh, present uh, the inside stories uh, to the readers. Yes, and also a very important part of my book is about the uh, uh, what it's like to be a woman in China, no matter it's the young generation or my uh, grandparents or my, uh, or my grandmother or my mother's generation. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because um, you're also a second child, aren't you? Yes, I'm a second child. We'll come to that in a second. I find it fascinating. Sorry. What do you think are the biggest differences between your generation of women and your and your mother's generation? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, the, uh, the the beginning of the book is about uh, how my mom. Uh, overcame all the difficulties to give birth to me. In, as you mentioned, I'm a second child, and at that time when I was born, um, it was basically the, the years with the, the, the most strict, the strict uh, policy of one-child policy. So I, my birth was illegal, so my mom tried very hard to give birth to me to, uh, at that uh, time when the family and the government both didn't basically didn't approve uh, her choice. Uh, so, yeah, you ask about the uh, what is what's the difference of uh, the different generations of women in China. So my mom, although she uh, fight uh, fought so hard, uh, but it was not there wasn't a, 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 a like a supporting network at that time. But for example, younger generation uh, women more likely to speak up speak up. Uh, as you would uh, like, maybe read something about last year's uh, Me Too movement mm-hmm. also um, had an impact in Chinese society, and many young young women, especially uh, the millennial millennial generation, like ch- chose to speak up and to um, uh, yeah to uh, basically publicly accused. Uh, the uh, first that was about the uh, some uh, very famous. Uh, Men of sexual uh, harassment, and then the movement actually expanded, and many women like stood up and to tell the inequality, uh, the the unfair treatment they uh, they received uh, over the years. But that is you basically wouldn't um, well hear or uh, expect from the older generation. I think that the younger generation are more confident, and yeah, and. Uh, have more uh, voices. They they want to express more their own voices. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, so, how did how did being a second child impact you? Like on a sort of practical day to day 
level? Mm-hmm. You know, did it mean that? I mean, ha- was your mother punished for having you, or you know, how? Yeah, how did how did it impact your life? Um, well, first is uh, how it impact my mother's life. Mm-hmm. You know, she uh, she was a school teacher. Uh, she she had been a school teacher since a very young age. And uh, in China, basically, if you had a work that related to the, well, it's like kind of provided by the government, then you, once you break the law, break the rule, then you are forbidden from, uh, uh, the, you are basically removed from the position you, you were hired. So my mom, uh, basically, she, uh, she, she, because she chose to give birth to a second child, she lost uh, the job in the school. Um, yeah, and f- myself is like, uh, you know, in the school, um, most of the children around me were single child mm-hmm. of their families. And I just feel very different. And also when I was, uh, when I was born, uh, my parents had difficulties to, uh, to legally register me with uh, like a hukou is is hukou is it, it means uh, the household uh, registration like a system uh, mm-hmm. with a hukou you could uh, go to school go to the hospital get married without it you are basically in Chinese called a black child it means you are illegal your existence is not allowed by the government so yeah my my parents first had some difficulties to register me. And they only could uh, do that uh, by uh, provide uh, by paying a lot of money to the government mm-hmm. to the uh, the birth control like uh, offices. Yeah. Do you think Do you think it would have been easier if you'd been a boy? Uh, do you think your gender had an impact on that? Uh, but in this like a uh, one child policy uh, system. Um, Maybe that that doesn't uh, have a difference, but growing up in China, uh, as a boy or as a girl, it's it's quite different yeah. experience. Like I, you know, I I, I studied science in uh, high school, and one of the reasons why I chose it was because, like, I was I was quite uh, upset by how teachers always say, oh, girls are not good at science. Uh, you, maybe you are good at study when you are younger, but once you get to high school or college, you just cannot compete with boys on science. So I was so upset. And I just want to prove that I could do it. So I chose science. I, I feel like that. that's, that's quite a universal thing. <laughs> that happens over yeah. here too as well, science and maths. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I, you know, just the, like all those um, expectation from the society, even from your own parents and grandparents is quite different. My grandmother, like she loved me, I knew that, but she, uh, when she talked to me, she was always like a cherished uh, li- the little girl, not like uh, expect me to do something great in mm. the future. She like, uh, she want me to marry somebody rich and then just settle down, you know. And also, when I graduated from college, when I tried to find my first job, I met some like uh, uh, discriminations from employers, and basically they want me to prove that, uh, to to uh, to promise that I wouldn't uh, get married and have babies in uh, within two years or, or three years, and to sign something. Uh, otherwise, um, he he wouldn't hire me. So those kind of experiences wow. is quite common among. Young woman is in that, China. Is that legal? Uh, 
Yes, it's not. Um, oh, it's not illegal. At least there, there wasn't any law to forbid it. Mm. But just recently, uh, there was uh, a regulation just that came out uh, a few days ago, uh, saying that employers can is not allowed to ask, uh, um, yeah, people about their uh, marriage status mm. and their plan to have babies. But that is partly well, people believe that is partly because. Uh, the government and now try to, you know, China is having a, a crisis on the uh, the birth rate. It's yeah. really low, and the government first just uh, uh, lifted the one-child policy in 2015, and but still the birth rate is not rising. So, but people believe that policy, that the new regulation is related to the fact that the government want to have a more births and to get women be not afraid of having the second child. That's really interesting. Um, I was I wanted to ask you about um, the about the writing your book. I mm-hmm. mean, forgive my ignorance, but in the West, there's there's quite a long history of women writing sort of you know personal essays, personal memoirs. You've got Nora Ephron, mm-hmm. Mary McCarthy, etc. Is is there a, a culture of that in China, or would you say you're a bit of a trailblazer? And are you maybe worried about? Any repercussions from being quite open and honest? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, it's it's not something very common in China. So mm-hmm. people, especially young young women, to write about very personal uh, related stories. Uh, it is a tradition that you know, like for a very long time, uh, like people in China were always worried about like speaking too honest about many things and your opinions your 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 just by speaking honestly could bring you trouble sometimes and it was so it was so uh, common that for example my grandparents they whenever I asked them about like the things happening in the past they they, they did, just didn't want to share. It's not like they, they don't want to share it to me. It's just because they think, well, first, it's very common. Like every everybody had, every family had this or that stories. And also they they uh, experienced the days under Mao, uh, Chairman Mao's, uh, uh, how to say, um, governing or, yeah, when, when Mao was in power and they, had seen so many people around me uh, got into trouble by speaking out. So it's not a, something very common in China to to write the family story. And also there, uh, you on this book market, you see the memoirs, but mostly is by somebody famous, or it's about somebody famous, or some family famous, mm-hmm. some famous families. Uh, yeah, so it's not a, a tradition in in China to to just for a very like common family person to write their own stories. Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm. Well, in terms of you, you asking if I'm worried or not. Um, so one of the reason why I chose to write in English is that I I want the book to. Um, to be away from a, a strong censorship in China. Mm-hmm. I know I could also write, I, I probably would write much easier, uh, much more uh, easily if I write in, in my uh, first language. 
Um, but I'm sure that many stories wouldn't have a chance to be published if I write in Chinese. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, over in the West, there's a lot of talk about, you know, China rising and um, all of this sort of stuff. Like, does it feel it excite, like an exciting time to be Chinese? Uh-huh. Uh, yes, uh, I think yes. Uh, it doesn't mean that is uh, well, everything in China is getting to a uh, better. It, it doesn't mean that China is going to a, a, a better direction. Mm-hmm. It, um, for example, like five years ago, when people talk about like uh, freedom of speech in China, most people were quite op- optimistic uh, because the uh, the development of uh, a social network. Uh, at that time, uh, made it much easier for people to comment uh, and debate online mm-hmm. on certain social issues. So people back then were so optimistic and think, oh, China is going to the way of more uh, freedom. But now, uh, five years later, it didn't go. We see it didn't go that. It doesn't go that way. And. You know, now there's more censorship on the internet compared to five years ago. Uh, so what I, why I say this is, uh, I think it's an interesting time, but it doesn't mean that everything is going better. But because it's not that simple that everything is going better, so to be a writer and journalist in China right now is an interesting thing because you basically you uh, witness the changes and how people are, are fighting against it. So yes. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's lucky to be a Chinese writer at, right now, especially when, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> Would you say that you and your friends or peers are quite engaged with politics? Well, it's a different kind of uh, engagement mm-hmm. into politics. Um, well, in the West, you would imagine people, young people, to uh, go to the street and protest against certain issues, but you would never see that in China. But it doesn't mean Chinese people are not political Mm -hmm. anymore, because if you read any articles online about international affairs, like the trade war uh, uh, between China and the US, uh, what is going on with uh, North Korea, you will see a lot of comments from young people and that shows they care and they, they really care and they want to talk about it, but they wouldn't um, go to the street to protest against uh, like a women's right or whatever, because first it's not allowed. And second, um, sometimes what you can read or what can, you can see is all determined, determined by the government and the party. So when the government doesn't want it to happen, you just uh, wouldn't see it. But it doesn't mean that people are not um, people are not interested in it. Mm. It's it's quite a big year for China, isn't it? Um, it's, it's, it's the 70th anniversary of the party. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, a lot of anniversaries this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, how do young people more broadly engage with politics? Because that's, you know, you're talking about now a very, a very established system that's been around for, you know, double their lifespan. <laughs> do they feel connected to it? Does it seem distant? Uh, you mean to the uh, the 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 the, right, the the government, the current yeah, government? The cover, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, well, I think 
of course, there isn't an easier answer to say like, oh, people are all approve of it, or people are all against it. Um, but many people, young people I around me who I know, are are quite satisfied with the government in certain ways. Like, for example, from my own experience, like 30 years ago or 20 years ago. The other day I was talking to a foreign friend saying, oh, you know, when I grew up, I couldn't, I basically never tried any fruit besides uh, apple, banana, and the pears. And, but now like basically you, I, 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 I think I could just uh, go into a shop and buy basically whatever I want to buy. Mm -hmm. And it's much cheaper and the salary get uh, much higher. And uh, also my own uh, life changes so much. So in terms of material and what the government have provided to um, Chinese families, I think life has been much better and the government, the party has done a, a good job in uh, like boosting the economy and everything. And you see all the economy miracles. Uh, but at the same time, because young people like me have more access to uh, for to Western uh, ideology, to Western mm -hmm. culture, and see, read, and uh, travel abroad and read more about what is going on in America, in the UK. So, more and more, we just feel that um, a, a large part of our uh, demand is not satisfied in terms of want to express ourselves more and we sometimes were not happy with the way the government the certain ways the government is is doing their job but at the same time we don't have the access to uh, criticize the government mm -hmm. or make a real change in time so that part we are not satisfied uh, yes so it's like a it's like a complicated mix uh, yeah yeah I mean, but it, it looks a little bit like there might be an economic downturn soon. I mean, um, are you guys sort of preparing for a for a lean time? <laughs> like, are you, mm. is it going to be tougher? Yes, I think it's going to be tough. Um, you know, my par my my parents' generation and the older generations they because they had uh, they have a, they have uh, had that uh, like really extremely difficult life in the past they know what it's like to be in a, even st uh, a great famine or uh, a, a very bad situation you basically couldn't have enough food or clothes so they were kind of like prepared for the worst always mm. to save money and they um they, they they always like be very cautious in spending but my generation are so used to the uh the, the economy uh, development. We just uh, take it for granted sometimes that life will always be better and better and better. <laughs> so, so many of us just don't uh, just don't don't want to be prepared. Uh, just thinking about the, uh, a, a bad uh, future. So I think a lot of us are not uh, ready for that. Hmm. Uh, there's a, as you said, there's a. Well, from the statistic uh, released even by the government, you see the economy is going down, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that would be a challenge for both the people and the government, the Chinese government. That's really interesting. I've got one last question for you. Okay. Um, thank you so much for giving me so much, of your, so much of your time today. What does Brexit look like from China? Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well... 
I think to to me and my friends, to many of my friends, is a quite strange thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, in China,、um, maybe this is、uh, how 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 China see the thing. Like we always talk about a bigger country, a bigger government. When when you unite together, you can. Overcome difficulties easily,、mm-hmm. so the Brexit is it's like to the opposite of it, to the opposite of the idea of a, a bigger country and the government. Although I know the EU is not a a a a, a country,、um, but to many people, like when the UK stand stands with the the the, the Europe. Well, what people just think, oh, naturally, like oh, you will be a a a stronger EU. Then why not stay? So to many people, it's just a strange. Like why, why British people want to stay away from, stay outside of the EU? <laughs> yeah, that's really、And、interesting. Talk about how, like the very practical things, like、uh, what would it affect、uh, studying abroad、mm-hmm. in the UK? And well, does it mean it would get more difficult? And like when you travel to the The UK, what differences there will be? Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for、um, giving up so much of your time. And、um, yeah, books out in May. Very exciting. Thank you, Angus. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> Okay, so here we are at the ISA. Still, this is the second in- <laughs> second interview that I've done from here, from Toronto, and、uh, yeah, I feel like I've I've been inside the same hotel for five days straight, and、uh, things are starting to go a bit crazy in my mind. But that's fine. Like, I'll go and see if I can find some、uh, some natural daylight at some point. But I'm really, really happy to、uh, <laughs> to bre- to break the malaise with、um, Erica Weintal, who has joined us to talk about her new article in International Affairs.、Um, Erica, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Inside the basement of the hotel. Yes, exactly. With a with a surprisingly loud air conditioning unit, but we're hoping that we can get rid of that <laughs> in the sound edit. So Erica is、uh, the Lee Hill Snowden Professor of Environmental Policy in the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University, and、uh, she recently co-authored a paper that was published in the March 2019 issue of International Affairs,、um, titled "Targeting Infrastructure and Livelihoods in the West Bank and Gaza." Um, so we thought we'd have a bit of a chat about that. So,、uh, Erica, this article came out of a larger research project. Could you maybe tell us a bit about what that's doing? Sure. So this is a co-authored piece with my colleague Jeannie Sowers, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of New Hampshire, and we've been working together for a number of years on a project that looks at the targeting of environmental infrastructure. Or what others might call civilian infrastructure in conflict in the Middle East, and some of this work has also been in conjunction with another colleague, Neda Zawahari,、um, at Cleveland State University, where we have been looking at the wars、um, that have taken place、um, since 2011 with the Arab Spring, but also looking at、um, longer wars, what we call protract- protracted wars, or also wars that. Have an occupation attached to the conflict, trying to understand what happens to infrastructure during the war, and 
the motivation for this project has been that many scholars have focused largely on the targeting of civilians, direct targeting of civilians, and that entails the um, you know, human body counts, how many people die directly in war, but not looking at the long-term impacts when you take out the basic infrastructure that undergirds human welfare, human security, such as water, sanitation, um, agriculture, medical facilities. And so we wanted to take a different look on what happens to civilians in war when you take out infrastructure. Okay, interesting. And so the article um, in question, you look specifically at the West Bank and Gaza, mm -hmm. correct? So what, what were your findings? What did you...? Yes, so this article in International Affairs focused um, solely on the West Bank and Gaza. Another part of the project looks at Yemen, Syria, Libya, also Iraq. But here we really wanted to look at the, a case of what happens when you have a protracted conflict with a prolonged occupation, which is very different than a short-term con conflict um, that's extremely violent because this one has, um, you know, very active conflict like we've seen in Gaza, but you also have a very long-term occupation, um, primarily in the West Bank, where you may not have active fighting, but you have restrictions on access to infrastructure development. And so we wanted to tease out what happens when you directly target infrastructure, like in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, when you take out water systems or take down electricity plants, um, power plants, but also what happens when you deny civilians access to building infrastructure such as water installations, or what happens when you bulldoze land or bulldoze um, trees, such as olive trees, and really trying to understand those long-term implications um, for human security. So what we find is that there are different forms of targeting infrastructure between Gaza and the West Bank. Um, there are different actors involved um, in the targeting of infrastructure. Um, Gaza is very much affected by not just active war, but the blockade imposed uh, um, by both Israel and Egypt. Mm -hmm. So there's restrictions on the movement of goods and services and people in and out of Gaza, which has um, limited any earlier gains that were made, um, you know, development gains, but also reconstruction gains. So you have these cycles of um, re you know, building, war, reconstruction, deconstruction that have severely hampered um, human welfare in Gaza and created a protracted humanitarian crisis. Um, the West Bank is a bit different because it is a very long-term, scholars like Rob Nixon have described as this is a case of slow violence where the impacts may not be immediately seen, but if you look over the long term, you will see these long-term restrictions on access to land, access to water, expanding electricity access. Um, you see farmers being cut off from their land, from their you know, water installations. And so we've been trying to track the different ways in which infrastructure has been targeted. Mm -hmm. And we've been building our uh, an original database where we've been collecting information um, from humanitarian organizations, from UN sources, from human rights groups, 
um, from different NGOs, um, even you know, government reports, to really map out. We've been doing a lot of mapping and um, trying to map out the different ways infrastructure is being targeted and who is targeting the infrastructure. Okay, that's really interesting. Uh, just thinking then about the about Gaza and the West Bank, mm-hmm. what what sense do you have of the motivations behind targeting infrastructure in this way? What what is there to gain by the people targeting the infrastructure? When we look at targeting infrastructure, one of the challenges is that international humanitarian law isn't really well developed. Um, There are a lot of protections in international humanitarian law for protecting civilians in war, the Geneva Conventions, Additional Protocol 1, Additional Protocol 2. Um, Most of those protections apply to civilians in interstate wars, and some, you know, there are increasingly protections in um, non-interstate wars or um, intrastate conflicts. But when it comes to infrastructure, it's often unclear Mm -hmm. what those protections are. There is a sense you are not allowed to do something that would cause harm to a population's survival or to cause starvation. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges for trying to understand the targeting of infrastructure in the West Bank and Gaza, particularly Gaza, has been this notion of what's called dual use. And there are many forms of infrastructure that fit into that category, where it may be an electrical plant that can be used for military purposes and civilian purposes. Okay. And so at times, one of the arguments that is made is that these are dual use installations. But because a place like Gaza or other conflicts in Syria, Iraq, these are heavily densely populated places. They're often in urban centers. So even if something is dual use, it is likely that this is going to harm civilians. Right. And one of the principles of international law is not to harm civilians. And so the perspective we take is very much in accordance with international humanitarian law that under no circumstances should civilians be harmed in conflict, that the, that civilians and infrastructure should essentially be protected. Another challenge has been that many of these um, forms of infrastructure are connected, that they are linked. So it's not that one could say, I'm going to take out an ele- electricity plant anymore, and that that was once a military installation. If you take out a military Um, or an electricity plant, you are also taking out water facilities, sewage treatment plants. It affects, you know, hospitals that may lose access to electricity, access to clean water. So this is what humanitarians have called the reverberating effects Mm -hmm. of taking out just one type of infrastructure. It has these broader effects for a whole system of infrastructure. And one of the challenges is that starting with the war in Iraq, states have used air power as a way to fight wars. And you know, as much as one can say we know where the infrastructure is, there are always collateral damage. And so, in a you know, in Gaza, it is very hard to simply avoid causing harm to civilians. 
So from the data that you've been collecting, how widespread is this practice? So what we've seen in Gaza, and again, the data that we've been collecting is not complete. So I don't want to in any way imply that what's in this article is complete data. It is what we were able to collect between a particular time period from 2006 to 2017, relying on a particular number of sources. And we are continuing to build out this database because we want to try to have the most complete set of data so we can avoid any biases in the data. What we've seen in Gaza is that when there were active periods of conflict, such as in 2008, 2009, 2014, you see more attacks on infrastructure being directly targeted, primarily water infrastructure, but also you see restrictions on fishing, which is something that most people often overlook in the Western press. And that there have been tremendous restrictions on fishermen who want to go out into the Mediterranean to fish, that they've had their um, fishing zones being more restricted. And so they can only go out a few nautical miles and all the fish there have increasingly been depleted and they don't get access to the deeper waters. You know, there's other things that you see that in the, you know, in, in 2014 that may not show up in the database but is in the article it, are these increasing restrictions on the import of materials to help rebuild infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So that's the other form of slow violence that we're seeing. Um, with infrastructure is just how difficult it is for humanitarian organizations to import parts for repairing a desalination plant or an electrical plant. Um, The West Bank is is a little bit different because you don't see spikes in intense um, targeting of infrastructure. But what you do see in the West Bank which is quite different, is this heavy targeting of the agricultural sector, which is which has been the slow violence of disrupting Palestinian agricultural livelihoods by uprooting trees, bulldozing soil. Often this is, the argument is that this is for security reasons. It may be for expansion of settlements. It may be for building new bypass roads. But you also see restrictions on access to water installations, um, not being able to drill new wells, not being able to repair water installations. There have been a smaller number of Um, instances in our database that look at the energy sector um, and that, you know, these instances are trying to build a solar, um, install solar panels. And part of the reason that we see what would be the um, confiscation of solar panels is that if you look at the article, we talk about the permit system, that that every type of new installation would need permit from the, need a permit from the civil administration, and many of these projects have been denied permits. And so, in the absence of having a permit, the military will demolish or confiscate um, infrastructure. Okay, so I mean that's a pretty stark picture that you painted. How? How much awareness do you think there is in this sort of international community that this is a practice? And is there anything being done to try and address this in international humanitarian law? So the one thing I want to say is there are more and more international um, 
human rights organizations, um, the humanitarian community that is focusing on the targeting of infrastructure and writing about this. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a bit distinctive because you've had 60 years of occupation, but you're also seeing this in Yemen. Right. Um, you've seen it in Syria with the destruction of cities, like all of infrastructure has been demolished. Of course. And so there is increasing attention to what some scholars have called this notion of switching cities off, um, Stephen Graham and his work. The international humanitarian community has been looking at what happens to cities during war, just because these are forms of urban war. Some organizations are trying to come up with um, lists of protected infrastructure. So in Geneva, there's a number of groups that are trying to come up with a list of principles right. to protect um, water infrastructure. Um, so you have a lot of meetings going on. The International Law Commission has been meeting to try to look at the different ways that the environment and associated infrastructure are being attacked um, and destroyed in war and what protections exist for ensuring that infrastructure is not targeted, but also environmental resources, and looking at the larger body of law. So often we look at international humanitarian law because that is the law of war, what mm -hmm. we, that applies during times of conflict. But there's a larger body of law from environmental law to human rights law that could be applicable for protecting infrastructure, installations, and as a result, civilians and the natural environment during conflict. Erica Weintal, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's that for this episode. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more interviews. Um, with the episode that we recorded from the Save the Children conference this week. Absolutely. And you might, if you're lucky, even get a little bonus episode in the meantime, um, which we can't divulge many details about, but just keep an eye out yeah. on your old podcast app. If you haven't subscribed to Undercurrents, you know that you actually can subscribe via any podcast app virtually. I mean, now I've said that, people may <laughs> email in and say, well, actually, you're not on this one. But um, <laughs> actually, if you could, that would be very useful to know. So, <laughs> like, But most podcast apps, Spotify, Acast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, we're there. Yeah. You can find us, subscribe, and if you could leave us a little review as well to tell us what you think about the podcast, that would be amazing because it helps more listeners find our content. But in the meantime, I'm Magnus Frimston. And I'm Ben Horton. And I'm always second on this episode. <laughs> and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>